I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This time on the Debunking Economics podcast with Professor Steve Keen, the crisis 10 years on. It's 10 years since the start of the global financial crisis. Today, we look at what went wrong and if it happens again, and it will, will it be the same? We'll look at that over the next half hour. Hello, I'm Phil Dobby. And yes, the world changed 10 years ago. August 2007 was when there was a run on the Northern Rock Building Society. You will have seen the queues outside the bank branches with people trying to get hold of their money. It was the first run on a British bank since 1866 and an early indicator of what was to follow with Burr Stearns running into trouble in March 2009. Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac bailed out by the US government in September 2008. Then Lehman Brothers files for bankruptcy, the largest bank bankruptcy in history. Then in the UK, the government continues buying or bailing out banks, Lloyds, the Bank of Scotland, and so on. It was a a series of events that few had predicted, and the likes of which we'll never see again. Well, I only say that because uh, Janet Yellen, the chair of the US Federal Reserve, has said that she doesn't believe there'll be another crisis like it in our lifetime. Well, thank goodness for that. Unless, of course, she's wrong. (laughs) So today, is she wrong? And what happened 10 years ago and how much of it is uh, repeating itself? Steve Keen was one of the few people, of course, who predicted the crash the first time around. Uh, I guess she is wrong, isn't she, Steve? It may not be the same, Uh, but we will have another one. Yeah, I mean, uh, Janet Yellen got a few brownie points from the progressive uh, economics fraternity because she uh, spoke twice, not once, but twice at the Jerome Levy Institute in upstate New York, which is where Hyman Minsky uh, was his final years of working before he died in 1996. Now, she didn't quote him at all in the first speech. He was dead by the time she was go talking in the second speech. And she got a few brownie points for that. And then she came out with this naive crap about how we're never going to have another financial crisis in our lifetimes. <laughs> and I decided to go and just have a good look at that paper. And when she, I checked and saw what citation had she made of Minsky. And it turned out it was an obscure paper uh, downloaded from the Jerome Levy website. It wasn't even a case of looking at some of Minsky's, uh, you know, serious, detailed works in, in journals. It was an unpublished working paper. And I thought, has she read the bloody thing? And frankly, I think the answer is no. It would have been a case of one of her underlings finding out that, uh, you know, she's got to go talk there, Minsky matters. Let's find a little link where she can refer to it. look like she's read fucking Minsky. Pardon the French, but I'm getting so <laughs> sick of this. And, See, uh, Minsky will be turning in his grave, no doubt. Absolutely. I'm, 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 I'm rotating for him at the moment. Right. Well, look, let, let's, let's, uh, let's not dwell too much on hair, but let's look, <laughs> at, uh, let's, let's look at you for a start, because you were uh, uh, alone in this prediction the first time around. Or were you? Were there others? I mean, Alistair- oh, there were others. I mean, like, for example, one thing I wanted to wave around in the interview I did today on BBC uh, Business Live was Anne Pettifor's book, um, The Coming First World Debt Crisis, because Anne published that book in 2005, 2006. And, uh, and she was talking about fundamentally the same dynamics that I, I talk about. And we saw Alistair Darling, um, who was the 
Shadow, some chancellor or shadow chancellor at some stage. And he was the he was well he was the chancellor of the exchequer in two thousand and seven when it all happened. Yeah, yeah. well, he he made this derisory comment about uh, you know people who claim to have warned about the crisis before it happened, as if nobody did. And what Anne and I have both experienced, this applies to Michael Hudson as well, of course, and Wynne Godley and so many others, is that uh, we when we were warning the crisis, we were we were satirized, sent up, uh, ridiculed. Uh, Cassandra's, you know, Chicken Littles, et cetera, et cetera. And then after the crisis, they didn't warn about the crisis. A complete flip from abusing us for warning about what nobody expected to when after it happened saying you didn't warn about it at all. So uh, the capacity of humans to emulate ostriches uh, is something I think which actually deserves a good PhD or two. Well, there was that paper from the Centre for Policy mm. Development where you very clearly predicted it. Yeah, and that was actually published in September of 2007. So it was actually, you know, pretty much on the... Uh, it came out, of course, virtually to the day, uh, about a month after the BNP crisis, but almost to the day of, uh, of Northern Rock's collapse. And that was a total accident, of course. Uh, but nonetheless, yes, I'd been writing that for, th- for a couple of months before it came out. And I was asked to write it because I had so many blog posts that I'd done in my debt deflation blog, mm. which, you know, God knows why I chose that name. Yeah, I wonder. Uh, so, yes, it was, there's an there's a, you know, incontrovertible record of people warning about it. Right. So let's look at what the causes were of this whole thing. Was it because of the size of the debt that had been building up or was it the fact that it was toxic debt that really counted? It was both. And the, the, what, what actually has happened, and I'm, I'm realising this is... Uh, what the how the financial sector has reacted and how the regulators have reacted. There are two fundamental problems with the banking sector. One is the uh, uh, liquidity issue because a bank uh, is has to have positive equity. If you have a, if you have a, a, what I what I prefer to start in my modelling is a pure capitalist economy, and I had government in after that. But if you have a pure capitalist system, uh, the monetary system, of course. Uh, then every entity in that system has the rule that as its assets minus its liabilities equals its equity. Now, banks to operate have to have positive equity. Effectively, they're gearing what they really do is leverage up their equity position. Well, they start with positive equity. That means, by definition, the rest of society has negative equity. Now, um, households, generally speaking, attempt to get positive equity. But f- firms can function with negative equity because the money that they've actually borrowed, they turn over. And the turnover of you know, selling goods and services means they can service a net negative equity position. So that's that's the fundamental problem. Now, uh, the, one, one of the one of the fundamental issues. Now, when you have banks lending out, you know, you're getting into a, exuberant lending as they did during the financial crisis and the overall trend for rising levels of debt since the end of the Second World War, they can get to the point where their assets have so many dodgy elements in them and the, pr- and the value of the assets is based on the price of the assets. A plunge in the price of the assets can put them in negative equity and they crash. So what's actually being done after the crisis is saying, well, that's the problem. Let's fix that. So they've increased the capital requirements. They've reduced the extent to which things like uh, Northern Rock was famous for, 125% loans you know, where you have a house you want to buy for four hundred thousand pounds, so they lend you five hundred thousand. Uh, that's that, there are controls on that, but I've still seen uh, walking through the streets of Sydney and walking through the streets of the, of London in recent times, I've seen ninety five percent loans being offered by by banks. So we're pretty damn close to to that level. So that side's being covered, and they're more aware of the prudential danger. But there's still absolutely no appreciation um, of the macroeconomic issue that credit 
is a fundamental part of total demand. And if you have a system with ex- excessive debt, uh, when that in that definition, uh, as I've said, it was using uh, Richard Vague's work, is roughly 1.5 times GDP, and your credit's growing at the order of, say, 10% of GDP per annum, then you have an enormous reliance upon credit and a, a simple decline in the rate of growth of debt is enough to cause a financial crisis. And that there's been nothing done that's been done about that. So we're still stuck in the aftermath of that element of the financial crisis of well, 2007. Not, not only is nothing done about it, it's, it continues not to be recognised as an issue, doesn't it? We keep on, oh, yeah. we, we still have that argument from central banks that uh, it's just a, a, a mere redistribution of money. I borrow from you, you have the money, yeah. the money's still in circulation, which is curious coming from central banks that have embarked on billions of dollars of asset purchases with money they've created, but still they think money is a mere redistribution exercise. Again, I mean, I've, I've just put up with a couple of journalists who don't think particularly deeply today, but I'm, equally, it's, I, can, I can't blame the journalists. They're there to front, you know, infotainment programs. But when you have people at the head of the Federal Reserve who live in this bubble where they are aware that they are creating money by double-entry bookkeeping, and they pretend at the same time, and they, they believe, it's more not pretending, it's actually believing, that banks lend out deposits. Now, they don't lend out deposits. They don't wait till the banks deposit reserves with them and then lend those reserves out to other banks. They've created trillions, quite literally trillions, of reserves in those banks by simply saying, we're putting an entry in your, your account at our bank, which... Yeah, your your the, the private bank's account at the central bank is a reserve account. We're putting a hundred billion in your reserves, and we're buying a hundred billion dollars of bonds off you. So we you know make the transfer. We record the bonds are worth a hundred billion on the asset side. We we put a hundred billion in your pocket. Uh, they're creating out of nothing, and yet at the same time they've got this pre- pretense about the private banks that they don't do exactly the same thing, which of course they do. So aside from all of that, I mean, Janet Yellen's argument, you mentioned the the prudential measures, and Janet Yellen's argument is that banks are stronger, they've got more in reserve, so they can cope with the drop in house prices, for example, and we are stress testing the banks to see if they can cope. I mean, could that fix the problem? So, for example, if we we think house prices are going to fall by 20%, don't we just need to ensure that we've got 20% reserves on housing loans? Well, it depends how you do the stress testing, and this is the other part of it. What are they doing when they do a stress test? Now, I've got to really dive in and have a good look at this, but what I understand they're doing is that they are modeling this in the framework of the of the usual linear analysis they do. It's not a dynamic stochastic general equilibrium model because most of them don't include banks at all to begin with. But it's a it's a set of uh, value at risk calculations where they say uh, if if there's a shock of, of this scale to uh, employment, uh, there's deflation, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, then what feeds through to the the banks as we've set up in this of equations. And without fail, uh, when I've looked at these things in the past, they're using linear models. Now, what linear models do is if you have a, a shock of 1% uh, and a shock of 10%, the 10% shock will cause 10 times the damage of the 1% shock because it's linear. You're adding things together. In the real world we live in, it's non-linear. If you, because you have, look, if you look at the um, uh, the, the the value of of, of, of of well the easiest one to talk about is wages. Uh, if you look at wages, they're a variable. If you look at the number of people in a job, that's a variable. The wage bill is therefore non-linear. It's wages times labour, which is effectively a quasi-quadratic. Now, if you were to take that into account, then what can be a, a, a if you have a one percent to a ten percent change in wages, if that's on top of a one percent to a ten percent change in 
employment as well. You get a hundred times change, not ten, mm. and that is the that is the um, reality the, of, of the real world, which is left out of the testing they're doing because they're still stuck. And this is the, the fault of economic education, of course. They're still stuck in modelling the world as if it is linear, and it is not. Right. And and that is so. The, 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 these things, which they're all tests, which would work if the economic theory applied. And the reason that. You know, reason I've got my prominence these days is clearly it doesn't apply. Right, and that, that non-linear issue, I guess, is even more pronounced when we're looking at things going down. So, for example, I deleverage my debt, but so does everybody else. So the uh, the multiplier of that is uh, can be quite extreme. Well, that's that's where the macroeconomic side comes in, and that's, what the, that's the other part that I focus upon that they haven't identified at all. So... They, the Bank of England and then the Bundesbank, as I've mentioned, the Bank of Norway. Somebody sent me a link uh, on Patreon from the Bank of Sweden, I think, even coming out with the same thing that the now admitting yes loans create deposits. If you, if you go for the, the, the model that they have, the, the model of uh, loanable funds effectively, where uh, savers finance what borrowers do and banks are warehouses effectively, then what you have is a decline in the spending power of the, of the, of the, the, the saver whose money is being lent to the borrower, an increase in the borrower spending power, and the two cancel out. So it's fundamentally like a seesaw. You don't change the, the height of the overall system. Once you acknowledge that banks create money by double-entry bookkeeping, that they don't, they don't need the savers' money at all to lend out. They create an asset on one side, a liability on the other, the liability being your deposit account. Uh, that means that the increase in spending power for the borrower is not offset by any fall in the savers, and therefore that credit is a component in aggregate demand, where that demand is spent on both in goods and services and buying assets. So once you've got that in your mind, uh, it's no longer a seesaw. It's more like walking up a hill because uh, the extra credit you get adds to the altitude of the overall economy, but that altitude includes the cost of a higher level of debt. And of course, ultimately, you get to the point where you can't continue raising anymore. And what you then do, you don't, you don't, you're not uh, remaining in the average height of a seesaw. You're hopping off a cliff. And that that particular, uh, the the image I use always comes back to Himalayas. We've we've climbed to Himalayan heights of private debt. The extent to which credit demand can be high now is diminished by the sheer level of debt we've currently got. So any stimulus we're getting from credit will evaporate at some point as we start approaching those ceiling levels of private debt that we can actually finance out of income. So I loved an analogy which was made by Richard Dennis of the Australia Institute. Uh, this was a, a few years back, uh, but I think he might have missed the mark slightly. He was he was talking about how we look at the value of banks and how banks are valued. And he said, uh, it's, uh, you know, the way we look at it, it's akin to saying a car park company actually includes the value of all the cars parked in the car park, where in truth, their only asset is the building. Uh, and it's the same with banks, but it's not really, is it? Because in in, the, in that uh, in that case, the uh, car park company would also be making cars in the car park and and it's, selling it's them a, to people. Yeah, it's a warehouse versus a factory. That's the analogy I've come down to. We treat banks as if they're warehouses; they're actually factories. And another analogy, which I'm actually I'm wondering whether I actually use this uh, in a in a blog post. I'm not sure if I will or I won't. But we treat them a bit like eunuchs who guard the harem. <laughs> okay, that's that's what they 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 they've had their balls cut off, so they paid they paid the ultimate sacrifice. They're standing outside and they're making you know lend, loaning out the elements of the hair from one person to another, and it's all warehousing and very very cautious. In fact, they're closer to pimps. Yeah, right. Okay, so we need to chop. You like that one? Yeah, we do. So basically, the solution is you say we need to chop their balls off. That's pretty close to it, and, <laughs> and we haven't done that because we still let them do all this, you know, profligate lending. We, uh, when we still, the, the, the ironic thing is, 
the crisis was caused by banks lending out too much money and the solution was to enable them to lend more money by giving them more reserves in the belief they could lend that which they can't. So, so, uh, so, no, can we have, so can we have another crisis? Could the next crisis not actually see – I mean, we tend to think of a crisis as resulting in a bank collapse – could we have a crisis where we don't actually have a bank collapse, but the economy still has a downturn, but we've put enough prudential measures in place for the banks to survive? It's just the economy doesn't. That's basically it. That's basically what I've said you know, back in, when I wrote the first edition of Debunking Economics back in 2000, 2001. I thought the world was going to turn Japanese because that's the situation Japan is in. It had its financial crisis back in 1990. It still had a rising level of private debt going up to about 1992, 93. But it's then come down from those astronomical levels of, I think, about 225% of GDP down to about 175%. But it's bounced around about that level for about 15 years. And what that's meant is that there haven't been banking collapses anymore, but the macro stimulus that comes out of rising credit's gone. And since Japanese corporations in particular finance their investment by borrowing from banks and the Koretsu systems they're part of, there hasn't been much innovation by Japanese companies. And that's why we don't talk about Sony when we talk about sound systems anymore. We talk about Apple and we don't talk about Toyota. We talk about innovation in cars anymore or Honda. We talk about um, Tesla. So the the center, the, the capacity of that country to innovate has declined because they haven't addressed that debt overhang and we're getting ourselves in the same situation. So we can have downturns in the macroeconomic sense without bank crises anymore. So, but banks are always going to be the cause of this, aren't they? I oh, mean, yeah. It, and, it, and it's, I mean, it's fundamentally, it's bank marketing, isn't it? You know, we're going to have more loans, bigger profits, so they can, uh, you know, they'll basically sell to anyone by offering more loans and uh, uh, the cheaper the loan, the better, just so long as they grab it from the other banks. And and, and obviously we've, uh, because we've bailed them out, we've also removed that um, that risk element. You know, we've renationalized banks, for example, in the UK, or we've, we, we've just given them vast quantities of money to get them back on their feet so what's going to change their behavior nothing nothing and this is i mean again bill black who's uh, one of my favorite people and the um uh, the guy who knows the insides of bank fraud better than anybody bill was the uh, for those who don't know bill was the um the prosecutor for the savings and loans crisis and he put he tells me he reckons he put at least 300 people behind bars and he said once you're behind bars bankers tend to change their behavior because what happens to them behind bars isn't quite as enjoyable what happens on the other side so uh that that threat of of um you know the ultimate legal sanction uh changed the behavior for a while in savings and loans and what's happened after the financial crisis bernie madoff's gone to jail and that's about it and he's treated as the absolute kingpin because he's the biggest thief in history so what is going to be the trigger then uh for the for the next crisis where is it going to come from and and how's it going to uh extend is it is it just that we reach a point where people go oh my god i'm so much in debt now better cut back and then that just starts to, to steamroll or is it going to be another trigger like for example if oil prices collapse and uh, and economies that are dependent on that revenue suddenly discover they can't survive could could it come from an unknown quarter it might still be related to debt but uh, could it be something else that triggers it? It's, it's, it's going to come from the countries that managed to borrow the way through the crisis back in 2008. So China went from a private debt level of about 100% of GDP to 220% in the last eight years. That's really what's financed that enormous bubble in China. They're going to fall over. They will be able to turn to a, a government stimulus much more rapidly than the West has ever done, but they will still have a, a credit crunch. Uh, then South Korea, Australia, Canada... Belgium, Sweden, quite likely, Norway, all these countries are going to have a, a belated crisis uh, in the next um, 
you know, one to three years. The difference is they probably won't have the banking crisis, as you said, but they'll have the macroeconomic downturn from credit going from positive to negative, and that'll feed through the rest of the system. So we're going to have potentially have macro crises caused by banks without bank failures. Right. And so long as the banks survive, of course, then all the shareholders and people in the financial sector won't feel the hurt quite so much this time. No, and they've been massively boosted by QE, so the enormous increase in income disparity, which was caused through the bubble in the first place, has been amplified by what central banks have done by through by QE when they buy bonds off the off the banks and off, off non-bank financial institutions. They then use that money. This is all deliberately encouraged by the central banks to buy shares. Who do they buy them off? People who own shares. Are they poor? No, they're wealthy. So what you have is an increase in. First, we had wealth income inequality driven up by the private banking system. Now, I've had driven up by the central bank's rescue as well. And, you know, in, in that situation, uh, the, the level of inequality we're building into our society by our, our under, lack of understanding how it actually functions in the first place is breathtaking. Does it matter uh, what that debt is being used for? So household debt obviously is a, uh, uh, is, a is a bad thing if all it's done is, is pushed up house prices. I mean, and you can see why that happens because obviously the banks think, well, okay, if they default on the debt, at least I've got a house at the end of the day. If right. business, business collapses, I get a bunch of desks and a secondhand photocopier. But if you've got, well, a, uh, if you've got a, a, a country where a lot of the debt is corporate debt, then that corporate debt actually might be used for, for growth, which could be a good thing. Yeah, there's still a potential to lend more than you can actually finance out of the turnover of of, uh, of existing money plus new debt. So that's that's one reason when I, when I modelled my Minsky uh, financial instability hypothesis, I can get a financial crisis coming out of lending tr- simply to finance investment. So uh, it, we've overlaid so many other ways to fail on top of it by allowing banks to lend as much as they do for speculation rather than for investment. But it can still happen. It'll end up for investment alone. So we have to get to the stage where we deliberately uh, acknowledge we can write debt off, uh, either in the debt jubilee, the way that I talk about, or the enabling banks to write off debt over 30 years that Richard Vague talks about. Something has to be done to enable us to control credit-based money. And if we don't do it, we're going to continue falling into traps like this again and again and again. And the economics profession, uh, I think, is front and centre in allowing that to happen. And second, unfortunately, the journalism profession. Yeah. Well, both of which don't have a great reputation since uh, since the last, well, I mean, the journalist profession since the eternity of time, but economics, <laughs> uh, economists since uh, since 2007, uh, obviously taking a hit. If it all happens again, uh, they'll take an even bigger hit. But there is this belief, isn't there, uh, from many circles that even if there is another crisis, it's not going to be like the last one. It's going to be caused by something else, which is why I asked the question. Could it mm. be because I've heard people saying, well, it's going to be the oil that causes the next collapse. But in your mind, it's nothing to do with any of that. It's just debt, 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 pure and yeah, simple. But, but, but also at the same time, I think what's going to really come through is the ecological issue. That's yeah. what I think we're, we're on, the, on the verge of that. And when that happens, uh, all this discussion we'll have will be irrelevant. It'll just be throw everything you can at the economy to try to prevent the ecology collapsing around us. And uh, in that situation, the, the, yeah, it'll be like the Second World War. I mean, my favorite example of, of, uh, of, of what that did was the British uh, budget deficit, which, of course, they were paranoid about all the way through the 1930s. And when the first year of the war hit, the budget deficit in, uh, in, in the UK was 40% of GDP. And nobody said, we can't afford that bomb, you know. Uh, what about our future children? So if we don't buy that bomb, 
our kids will be speaking German. It was an existential threat, and that meant all the, all these discussions went out the window, reacted to the existential threat, and we actually eliminated the cause of the crisis by accident. And I think that's more likely what we're going to do. I can't see us doing it deliberately. Right. Well, you mentioned that ecological issue, and in a couple of episodes, we're going to look at how one way of tackling that is, of course, by carbon pricing, either a tax or a trading scheme. Does it work? Or is it just too late for all that? We'll, we'll see you then. Thanks, Steve. Okay, man. Uh, but next time, quantitative easing. Does it help the poor as well as the rich? Well, there's probably a quick answer to that in just two letters. But we'll look at the counter-argument, which has been given by the Vice President of the European Central Bank recently. He reckons it is helping the poor as well as the rich. Uh, we'll pull apart his theory, of course. Uh, but we'll hear what he has to say. That's next time on the Debunking Economics podcast with Professor Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby. Thanks for listening. 